1: And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak
2: then? I
3: am a revolutionary. Let's think about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we
1: do outside of the White House.
2: African descent fairly, America failed. She put
0: And now to our Common Ground with Janice Graham.
1: We are not interested in anybody liking us. The purpose of this existence is so that we can learn to like ourselves. this entity, this body, this light, our very presence as African people is the consequence of something that is transcendent. We must understand that we represent not only the residue of this insanity, but most importantly, we represent the very hope of our people.
2: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
3: And we thank you for being here on Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I have missed you as well. I apologize. Over the last month, um, I have taken some time off. Some um, broadcast time where we are normally scheduled each Saturday night at 10 p.m. to come to our common ground to examine our perils and victories. Um but there were a couple of weeks there where I was off the air and um it was simply a matter of trying to decompress so much is going on in our lives there are attacks on every side and if you know anything about me, you know that I have—I am compelled, my entire being is compelled to know everything that is going on. And after a while, your brain becomes like one bowl of oatmeal that you put too much water in and nothing can redeem it. So I took some time off. I didn't tell you that I was going to take the time off, and I usually try to be kind and considerate of my audience, but we are back, and we thank you for joining us. If you are new here at Our Common Ground, you will figure out that this is a serious examination of the issues before us, of... Issues and events of thoughts and ideas, and uh we don't make any effort whatsoever to entertain you. This is not your father's talk radio show, but we do ensure that we try to bring you the evidence much clearer, because I believe that all black people see the evidence, but sometimes it's not so very clear. Sometimes it's not so very precise and concise in its relevance. The other thing for you that are new you will find from this radio show, and I hope you become part of our family uh, even if you come by every now and then, is that We don't coddle what we need to face, whether it is a reckoning, whether it is the need for redemption, whether it is the need to continue to turn it over, and we do not get distracted. Now, some of you are out there saying, well, uh, you know, lots of things have happened, yes. I say the name Sandra Bland. I say the name Eric Gardner. I say the name Michael Brown and Laquan McDonald and Tamir Rice and Kenneth Johnson and now Mario Wood. But those are events in our lives that are centered in an epicenter of status. And that is what we have to do. I was talking with our guests last night and one of the things that we need to we talked about and we need to discuss is the idea of more black children are living in poverty in America than ever before in the history of our existence on these shores era of an African-American president. We're really honored tonight to have you with us, and you need to write this down. Our number is 347 um, And we're going to try not to get into the particulars of uh, the event. We are going to try to stay tonight on a discussion, and examination of what those events mean in a larger context. Because it is the larger context that we have to change. We will change it, folks, or we will become dissolved or invisible. I have been saying that in 31 years of Broadcasting Our Common Ground. And yes, in October, we celebrated our 31st year of broadcasting. Our number is 347-838-9852. And our guest tonight, we're honored to have with us Pascal Rober. He is a blogger. But more than a blogger, it takes a brain and an active and aggressive kind of thinking about the events in a historical, cultural, and political context. He is uh, sheer political independent unafraid to slay the most sacred cows of ideological orthodoxy from the left or the right, and one who enjoys global affairs and aspects of pop culture. In 2008, he became what I know him as the thought merchant. He was recognized for his coverage of the Democratic primary by authors of the famous Jack and Jill Politics political blog for being the first to introduce Hillary Clinton's plan to use a super delegate system to disadvantage Barack Obama in the Democratic Democratic primary to the blogosphere. After the election of President Obama, uh, Brother Robert continued to blog about the issues of political and social importance facing communities of color and greater society until the January 12, 2010 earthquake hit his beloved ancestral homeland of Haiti. And he began the work to ensure that the children and the people of his homeland were protected from the political, egocentric activities of nonprofits and governments. Then he began to transform his online activities to not just addressing politics and social issues as he did before, but becoming a full-fledged online advocate and activist for Haiti. He is the co-founder and list administrator for the Haitian Bloggers Caucus, a consortium of bloggers from Haiti and the Haitian diaspora. His work and the work of all members of that caucus can be viewed on uh, a blog aggregate. It includes blogs by people of Haiti, descendants living in Haiti and abroad. His parents fled Haiti in the mid-1960s from the oppression of then-president Francois Papadoc Duvalier. He was born and raised in New York City, received his Bachelor of Arts degree in social science at Hofstra University. He's a graduate of of the Boston University School of Law, and we are so pleased he writes for the Huffington Post and the Black Agenda Report. He also, in the past, has written for the Black Commentator, and we are so pleased to be able to talk with him about America. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's good to have you with us, finally. It's
2: good, it's good to have you, too, to speak to you as well, Janice. How are you doing this
3: evening? I'm doing great, Um
2: I feel
3: like I just talked to you. Uh, I mean, there are people out there who know. I don't talk to anybody on the phone for five hours, (laughs) unless I'm doing a broadcast. But we really went through every one. Uh, I mean, I was still thinking all day long, uh, walking through our five-hour conversation last night, and it was so easy for me to put together an agenda uh for our discussion uh for for tonight just based on uh what seemed to just continually float up in our conversation uh on last night. And I really thank you for the time and I thank you for the education because it was an educational uh conversation for me as well.
2: Not a problem One of
3: the things, um, Pascal, that I want to um, uh, try to do tonight, I mean, it's not like you're going away or anything and we can't talk again, (laughs) but I'm just really anxious to get to a number of things. Black people in this country are really suffering. You know, you all are suffering, but you just don't, some of you don't know it. Some of you are either sleeping or in a coma. And uh, when you wake up, you would have missed a lot of the discourse and the activities relative to how we're going to address some of this. So I want to start out and ask you to talk with us, uh, Pascal Robert, about the five things that you think are the most urgent for Black people and our brothers and sisters throughout the African diaspora, uh, especially for uh, especially Haiti and the Caribbean, what do you think are the most urgent things that are collective in in, in nature that face us? as as a people, as a family?
2: Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on your program. I've been a big fan for quite a long time, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to address these issues, especially considering that we talked yesterday about you know, the crisis that ex- ex- exists in the black community, not only domestically but internationally. But to answer your question directly, for me, the biggest issue that we are facing as a people, as an African diaspora, but particularly black people in America, is is the root of what I consider to be most of our problems, and it is getting worse in the United States, and that is poverty. And when I'm talking about black people in America, to me the biggest crisis that we are facing right now is that we now have the highest... Numbers of black child poverty that we've had in forty years, and for the first time in recorded history, even though the numbers of, of white children uh eclipse the numbers of black children overall, there are now more black children, according to the Pew research Center. there are more black children in poverty now in totality than the number of white children um that that is that is stultifying that is that is a that is a crisis to me that is something that uh everyone within the African American community should be sounding an alarm about because what that is basically saying is that the material condition of the future immediate generation and perhaps generations of uh of black people in this country are materially worse than they have been since almost the end of the civil rights movement so in a, in an in, a, in an economic and material way the actual quality of life of black people uh ha, has is actually depleting and getting worse and going backwards so that would be you the distinguishing first thing I think
3: between depleting and declining
2: well i think we, the, the the actual amount of wealth is depleting and i think the quality of life is also declining yeah uh
0: uh-huh.
2: so so I, I think it's a combination of both uh in that regard i i think that, that is the most pressing issue and of course poverty is something that black people face diasporically throughout the world and for me my analysis of the relationship of blackness to the powers that are uh basically stopping the advancement of the black community rest in the economic condition of black people. The relationship of black people to white people is a power dynamic. They have a certain power. This this phenomenon that some people call white supremacy or racism is about a power dynamic between black people and white people. And the basis of that power dynamic is the economic ability of people of European descent to maintain the means in production that govern and flow throughout the planet and basically exclude black people from that control to the detriment of people of color. And the fact that that reality in the United States has gotten to the point where we now have more black children in poverty than uh, we've had in 40 years, and more black children in poverty than whites overall to me is the first major problem for African Americans. Uh, do you want me to continue, or you want to address that? Yes,
3: continue.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For me, this, the second biggest issue for uh, black people in the United States is mass incarceration. Uh, mass incarceration is a phenomenon that started right after the Civil Rights Movement with the war on drugs, started by the Nixon administration. It was a direct tactic designed to uh, basically a reactionary push against, the radical black power era in an attempt to neutralize the voices of black people that were you know, exploding in the streets with the uh, urban rebellions. The, between 1967 and 1971, there were over 300 urban rebellions that were going on throughout the country. And the advent of mass incarceration and the proliferation of heroin started as a means to basically neutralize uh, the black community in this time in which they were seriously trying to challenge the political and economic status quo. Of course we also know that was during the height of the Black Power era and the Black Panther the Black Panther Party. So this was not simply a run of the mill uh reaction to crime and criminal activity. Currently right now uh is anywhere between fifty and some say fifty five percent of the incarcerated uh population are African Americans but we only make up twelve percent of the population uh so that means that there is an excess of 1 million at least black men for sure but some say of course 2 million black people overall uh in the prison system where there's over 1 million in the prison system overall so the the actual toll in which mass incarceration has on the quality of life because as you know once someone is incarcerated and they have a felony record the ability to get a job is profoundly, profoundly hampered. in some states the ability to vote is limited uh, or or even denied. So uh the the economic ramifications, returning to poverty, the economic ramifications of having such a large portion of our community dealing with uh you know, prison and incarceration and felony incarceration uh is is profound it's it's immeasurable. This is something that has weighed on almost every african American family in this country in some way may have a distant cousin or even a close cousin or family member or immediate family member that is incarcerated so for me the the toll of mass incarceration and the need to 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 stop this onslaught needs to uh, it needs to happen. The, the, there needs to be a massive, massive transformation of not simply the role of policing, but the whole function of the criminal justice system needs to be absolutely transformed and changed. And there needs to be serious analysis of what is the function and necessity of criminalizing blackness in America. What are the origins of the criminalization of blackness? What is the, what combined with as we were talking about earlier, the origins of deeming poverty as being correlated to blackness. These things are not accidental and these all have a specific function and role in the American capitalist system. So those are the first number 1 and number 2. The third most pressing issue for me facing black people in the united states i would say is uh the education system and the decimation of the public school system with the rise of uh the reactionary charter school system that is basically forcing you know in some numbers over 50,000 Black and brown teachers that have been fired within the last eight to ten years. It is causing a crisis because, as you know, the black teacher served a specific role in the black community. Traditionally, the black teacher was a person who would be the community organizer, the political educator, the social healer, the one who would convey information. The, person, the black teacher was the glue of the black community, going back decades in this country and the fact that we had not that the 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 rise of the charter school agenda with not only no child left behind but race to the top the mass closing of public schools throughout this country the epidemic of public school closings and teacher firings is a problem and my, my point is not to say that the public school system was a uh was pristine before that that's not my point but what i'm saying is that when we are going to a privatization model of charter schools, and that's really what it is, it denies community control of education. And when we deny community control of education, we are denying people the ability to have a role and say in what is going on in their communities. And if we cannot get state resources to address state institutions with community control in a democratic fashion and, have them transferred to private control, then we are surrendering to to an agenda that I think is one of the most dangerous agendas that we face in this country, and that's called neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is just a fancy word for privatization. It basically means that the government is giving up state functionality to the private sector, and the private sector is going to be responsible for dictating government services to the population, without having that same amount of community control. So that's the third thing. The uh the fourth thing that I would say is a pressing issue, particularly to the black community of the United States, is the mass massive exponential growth of gentrification. I think that gentrification is basically the purging of black people from the cities that we have had dominion and control over for, you know, over two generations. Massive, a perfect example, perhaps the worst example of gentrification that I can think of is the way in which Katrina, the natural disaster, was used as a pretext to purge that city of tens of thousands of black people and turn it into, a you know, a vacation wonderland for elites, completely decimated the public school system there, which was not a pristine one at all. But now it's basically the model for the neoliberal city. People are saying that the best thing that ever happened to New Orleans was Katrina, that you had basically black people leaving and disappearing and being forced out into the the hinterlands was a good thing. So I would think that gentrification would be, Uh, the fourth major issue of uh, the black community that I think is problematic. And I think that uh, the fifth issue that I would say is the crisis of the devaluation and the lack of ability to negotiate black labor, that black labor in America is being devalued, we are moving to a post-labor society in America with the rise of the sharing economy, the Uber economy, with massive, massive uh, uh, removal of manufacturing jobs, which have been exacerbated now with the advent of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the trade agenda that President Obama has so vociferously advocated that will ship thousands of manufacturing jobs over to Asia Just compound that with NAFTA and GATT which had already shipped those jobs And those are the jobs that are most important to provide quality wages To all working class and working poor in this country and the working class do represent the significant majority of the african-american Community so the fact that those jobs are disappearing that black labor is becoming devalued. What does it mean when you have a collective group of people who do not have labor skills that they can negotiate economically as a vehicle for power in the United States? I think that that would be my fifth in terms of blacks in this country. And I, you know, I know you wanted to talk about diasporically, but I think it would probably be more pressing for your listeners for me to focus on the things Relative to the United States, but all of the things that I just mentioned, they actually have international diasporic ramifications for the black community, particularly neoliberalism, the privatization of industry education, and particularly uh, things like devaluation of labor, international capitalism, and the larger thing for me is that the one specific thing that correlates to everything that I mentioned as my top five, is that they all relate to the condition of black people in the political economy of the United States. And one of the things that we talked about yesterday is that I told you that I think that one of the things that has been a historic shortcoming of the way in which we view the particular struggle of black people in the United States is that we always view it as black people relative to whiteness and I said that there's that a problem because what we need to do is to view it as black people relative to capitalism because capitalism is the mechanism that empowers whiteness and feeds white supremacy and if we do not understand how what our role is in the political economy and root our politics In a political economy, then all of the things that we are concerned about vis a vis racism will never change. For example, some people may ask, well, how come I didn't talk about police brutality? Well, I think that police brutality is a major problem, but I think that mass incarceration definitely has a higher ranking in terms of a consequence of police brutality because police brutality is definitely problematic. You can get hurt and you can get killed, but you may not necessarily get killed because of police brutality. But the point I'm saying is that mass incarceration is something that has affected over two generations of the black community. And I'm not trying to say that police brutality is not a problem, but the ultimate reality is that the function of police in the United States is to deem blackness criminal. It's to basically create a, police in the state are basically the foot soldiers of American capitalism. And the brutality is simply as a consequence of rendering particularly poor black and brown people as functionalists and removed from the function of the economy and make them surplus, useless labor in, in a prison economic system. So those would have been my top five. And as I said, they're rooted in political economy, and they're rooted in what is the position of black people in America relative to American capitalism.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, when – you look at the five that you have listed there are clear dots of connection uh one is one thread gold thread that runs through every five uh, all five of those is the issue of crime and the way in which as you just pointed out that crime has been equated with criminality but also poverty has been equated with moral failure, which in the minds of many people in a system of white supremacy is is, is also a crime. The other is with mass incarceration. You can't talk about mass incarceration without talking about racial profiling. And you certainly and you certainly can't talk about black on black crime without talking about racial profiling because it has to do with the image of black criminality. Uh, criminality. Uh, <laughs> so. We've got to find a way, in my mind, to connect these dots. You know, I spent the day at a conference on racial justice with the national presidents of the five major labor unions in this country, IBEW, uh, SEIU, AFL-CIO a f g e i spent the in i spent six hours today conference talking with these people about the way in which they operate contributes and attributes to black poverty and the lack of black employment in this country i mean these were like the national presidents. And one of the things we talked about, that I talked about in this conference, and, of course, sometimes people like me tend to dominate the discourse, and I tried real hard not to do that. And since I was talking to you until 4 o'clock this morning, I was thinking, well, I'm going to run out of steam, but I never did, was the idea that these union heads have got to begin to think through the ways in which they can influence a number of issues. And one of the things I pointed out is that there is not there, the, the, these unions also have a membership called state local police and in the process of looking at and and, and examining how police unions are coddling, protecting, and defending police brutality and murder in this country is criminal, it's immoral, and you cannot talk about racial justice as a union without talking about it. And there was one gentleman who also offered that the unions should start dropping support because unions provide legal support to these police officers, Um, particularly in the area, you know, like uh, an example is Baltimore. The police union is paying for lawyers for the uh, in the Freddie for police officers who have been, died and been indicted in the in, in the Freddie Gray case. And the yeah, question absolutely. is: Here is how dots get connected. But I want to ask you about this: When we talk about the black community, what is your analysis about what that is?
2: Oh that's a that's a very that's a very good question and I think my, my my answer might be somewhat controversial is that um I'm actually coming to the point where I question whether there is actually one unified cohesive black community and what I mean by that is that I think that because of racism and the function of the way in which what, you know, racism functions in American society, it creates this illusion of racial kinship and racial uh, uh, unity amongst people who actually, because of their economic reality, have very different agendas in terms of what functions they, they have in society. I think that what we actually have is a black community or black people who are of different class positionality, who have different interests, but because they are in a position in which they view the quote-unquote white power structure as opposing them, that they assume, they
1: assume
2: that they are all on the same page. And I think that the most damaging way that that has played out is the way in which traditionally the political agenda and the economic agenda of the black community has been dictated by black elites generally universally trained elites and educated and professionals setting the agenda for the majority of black people who are actually working class and a lot a significant portion that are poor less than 25% of black people are college educated we have a small tier of black elites and that has been the case for over a century that are dictating the political agenda of a community of people who do not reflect their economic reality because the majority of black people are working class people, uh, you know, working poor actually. And the agenda that has been set by that elite, by that educated elite has reflected their desires relative to the American capitalist power structure or white power structure more so than the desires of what the majority of the black and brown people who are working class and the rest that are poor desire to 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 refer to that quote by E. Franklin Frazier the famous uh, uh, black sociologist of the early 20th century who said that because of its desire to uh, obtain the approval of whites the black elite have never played a responsible role in the black community. Now, that's a powerful statement. This is a man who was the premier sociologist. Uh, one, you know, he wrote The Black bourgeoisie, of course, most people will know that book, which was a a, a a a scathing critique of the black elite. And uh, his basic argument is that all of these people, and this is a man who was uh, you know contemporary of Du Bois, the Talented Tenth, and all of that, that all of this. All of these people who claim to be our, you know, our Black History Month heroes, our elite, our leaders and all that, basically are not effectively fulfilling a role that is really critical to the majority of black people. And this is really in line with what Carter G. Woodson said, where he said, basically said that the graduates of our best and universities are, you know, pretty much useless in the overall development of their people. And my, my to answer your question is that how I define the black community is that I define the black community as a community of people who have different class and economic interests. It does not make sense for Bob Johnson, who was almost a billionaire, who, you know, at one time advocated, advocated privatizing Social Security, which was a plan by, was promoted by George W. Bush, it does not make sense that a man like him, who probably is not a fan of unions, who's probably not a fan of, you know, socialized health care, it's not logical for him to have the same politics of a 25-year-old woman who works in fast food to feed her family. So you're telling mm-hmm. me that the only reason that they have the same politics and Bob Johnson is considered to be a leader all of that woman's community is because they have the same skin color. Does that really well, make that, sense?
3: That really brings us to a very interesting point. If, in fact, that there are class differences within what we have called, quote-unquote, the black community, then and our politics and our voice, essentially our voice, have been driven – by a leadership, and you have written, done a lot of writing about the black misleadership, uh, about the nature of uh, people who have been labeled as leaders of the black community uh, operating from a sense of redemption and how that relates to the same kind of System that operated in slavery and in post-slavery times. Who oh, then is the voice that will address the issues of poverty and mass incarceration? Because it's not black elites' children that's going to going to prison.
2: No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a very important. As a matter of fact, there's a really good book called. Uh, Punishing the Poor. I have it right here. It's by a man named Loic Wakant. And uh, a lot of people are talk about the, the importance of the new Jim Crow, which is an excellent book by Michelle Alexander. But I really suggest people read this book, Punishing the Poor, The Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity, by Loic Wakant. And this book basically explains how the function of the criminal justice system is to punish poor people. And he has very interesting data basically showing that the chances of a black poor person getting incarcerated and interacting with a a police officer in the criminal justice system relative to a black person who has a college education is greater. The the, the difference between their chances are greater than the difference between the black college-educated person and a white person. In other words, what I'm saying is that... Poverty, blackness and poverty, have a consequence relative to the criminal justice system that is greater than just mere blackness. Does that mean that racial profiling does not affect middle class blacks as well? Of course, but statistically, the people who are the most over-policed are poor and the working poor within the black community. So that's a very important point that you bring
3: up. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you... Um there was a report uh economic report um in the mainstream media last week which re- which was talking about research that concluded that uh there are more people in America than there are middle class people and I didn't quite get what definition they had used to frame the research but one of the things that occurred to me is that uh if you do if you do that kind of examination on a national scale then where is and who does the research and Tommy Tommy Curry and I talk about this all all the time about the need for more empirical uh data uh both for uh c- contemporary analysis but also to put we have to put everything in our historical and 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 cultural context so if if that is so even if we had the development which i'm 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 not optimistic that we will of public policy that addresses some of the issues um you know tax derivatives tax reg, uh, regulatory um, tax regulations being uh, altered and 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 revised. How is that going to benefit black people? And and you know the other thing, Pascal. And I know I'm I, I keep whole uh, I keep
0: moving around.
3: And as Yvette uh, Carnell indicated, that we were going to talk about everything. The whole notion that. Um, <clears throat> That the people who make public policy or who say that they make public policy uh promulgate legislation on in our interests, do they understand that in that pool of uh great poverty poverty in the United States that inside that are poor black people? who are really at the bottom rung of what whatever empirical data that they have gathered? And do black people understand, black people who with jobs and, and own houses and cars, do they understand that they are living at the bottom rung of uh, a false middle class? And I'm going to ask you this, and I know you're going to try to respond. To, I know you can't respond to all of this. I just want to say, what is the worth of Black intelligentsia in all of this?
2: No, you, 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 you're, you're asking some loaded questions. I, I like that last one. I'm going to get to that one <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that's, oh, that's yeah. That that that's, well, to answer your question in terms of policy, I am a believer in uh the capacity of policy to change the conditions of black people and if people asked me if someone was asked me what do you think is the thing that has contributed the most to the uh economic uh the actual overall reality of black people in america i said i said two things two things in my opinion are the most uh, drastic causes of where black people are. The first thing is that black people comprehensively as a class or race, if you will, did not benefit from the New Deal post-Depression that lifted the white poor to middle-class status In in, remotely anywhere in the same degree and extent as the white community did. So the biggest policy agenda in perhaps American history, the biggest anti-poverty agenda, I would say, in the history of this country, was the New Deal that was set aside that was created by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in response to the Great Depression. And there is a very good book. I've mentioned this book, I think I've mentioned it to you. I've mentioned it on social media called, that everyone, I believe, every, not only every black person, but every American needs to read. It's called When Affirmative Action Was White by a professor at Columbia University named Ira Katz Nelson. That's K A T Z N E L S O N. When Affirmative Action Was White. And if, and I made a statement one day on social media that if I had to give one book, that was a non-religious book to every American in this country, I would give them that book. And the reason why when affirmative action was white is such a crucial book is that it documents with empirical data to explain how the New Deal, which was so crucial in creating this white middle class, I remember when uh, when uh, Bill O'Reilly was asked by someone how his family was allowed to live so comfortable in uh, I think some somewhere in Long Island, he said it oh, was like oh my family you know my father benefited from the GI Bill after World War II blah blah blah. Well, what what Bill O'Reilly failed to realize is that in many parts of the country, in most parts of the country, black people were not allowed to benefit from that at all. Okay. Definitely mm-hmm. not in the same okay. degree. As white folk. And what this book, when Affirmative Action was white, illustrates is not only how much the New Deal empowered economically the white poor, the white ethnic poor, the immigrant poor, the urban poor, the southern poor, but because of the fact that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to strike a deal, with Southern Dixiecrat segregationist senators who were part of his own party, the New Deal was structured in a way so that it did not change the economic relationship of black people, who the majority of which lived in the South, relative to Southern capitalism. What does that mean? What that means is very simple. The South needed... Black people to stay poor agricultural sharecroppers and domestic labor, particularly sharecroppers. As we talked about yesterday, the function of Jim Crow as a legal American domestic apartheid regime was to keep black people as cheap southern agricultural labor. Racism was the mechanism of terror used to maintain that economic order. This goes back to what I said earlier about black people needing to understand what is their place in America relative to the function of American capitalism. You ask many black people, they say, why did we go through Jim Crow? They say racism, white supremacy. Jim Crow was a regime that was put forth by the, with the advent of Plessy versus Ferguson to neutralize the power of black labor to make sure that black people were forced to maintain as powerless and inab- enabled, unable to negotiate their labor power as Southern agricultural economy. Perfect example of how the New Deal passed black people by. All of us know what Social Security is. We all have a Social Security card. You know, the Social Security at the age of 65 it gives you certain benefits. You know, Medicare, Medicaid, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. The Social Security Act of, I believe, 1929 that was passed by FDR was a major, major anti-poverty agenda that helped many senior citizens protect and many working people protect, give them some semblance of a modicum of a quality of life upon retirement. Well. The well, thing that is interesting about the Social Security Act is that there were two categories of labor which up until 1959 that's 30 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. almost 1960 were completely denied social security benefits. So understand what I'm saying mm-hmm. there were two categories of labor that structurally by policy could not benefit from social security until 1959, those types of labor were agricultural workers and domestic and workers. domestic workers.
3: And even when Pascal, even when the law was changed in 1956, domestic workers and agricultural workers in the in the deep South were con- continued to be denied. Where white farm owners and white people who employed domestic maids um, chauffeurs, cooks house cleaners they still paid those people under the table and never posted social security taxes
2: for them that's right and this is why this is very important Now, as we showed, there were two types of labor that were excluded, agricultural workers and domestic workers. Well, guess what? Up to 60% of black labor in the United States at that time Mm -hmm. were either agricultural workers or domestic workers. That means for 30 years, 60% of black people were denied social security benefits. What do you think the market value of those thirty years worth of labor is, adjusted for inflation and interest, in two thousand fifteen? How much wealth was denied? Which is, which is denied? why we
3: ended up in the nineteen nineties and the and the and the beginning of the of of two thousand two thousand one, with a large population of elderly black people who got minimum social security. Uh, benefits or no Social Security benefits at all, which was a huge pool of poverty-stricken elderly people. That's correct. So that was up until two thousand two thousand and ten. Was at that pool, those people were in their seventies and eighties by by two thousand and ten. And people so, do not. Do not understand that there was no recourse because the Social Security benefits uh, regulations work the same for everyone.
2: That's right, and that's just one of the ways we can talk about the GI Bill. We can talk about you know the National Labor Relations Board. We can talk about you know the how every aspect of people don't understand the degree to which the New Deal transformed the economic platform of the exactly. United States. Housing.
3: Housing Housing. That's that's right. That's right. The majority um, of
2: black people were completely denied the benefits.
3: VA benefits
2: all of these things.
3: Yes, absolutely. So it 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 created the basis and the foundation for a continuing level of poverty for black people Um, and the breakaway hasn't been significant
2: no no
3: you know when so people you know when they start talking about we're going to take our country back we're going to make government smaller one of the ways in which they talk about uh the the congress talks about making government smaller is because they walk around in government offices and they see all these black people and say oh yeah we don't need them we're taking our country back we're going to make our government white whiter and that means that we've got to dilute some of the presence of black people who live in Washington who happen to get government
2: jobs. Well, this is the thing that's that's, that's very important. If you notice, during this whole conversation, we've been talking about all of these crucial problems in the black community. And you, and I don't think any of your guests have, would deny that these are some of the core problems. Do you notice that in our conversation, very few times do we mention, per se,
1: quote-unquote,
2: whiteness, white supremacy, or racism. We talk about how, and this is what the problem I have with the way racial discourse is framed by many in our community relative to our position. We talk about racism and white people and the white man without understanding that there is a particular way in which the function of capitalism relegates blackness that does not even mention blackness in the actual statutes. It is race neutral. But the way in which the law is implemented is a detriment to black people. And if we do not understand how capitalism as an economic system, has not worked to the maximum economic benefit to the black community. And we focus exclusively on whiteness and white supremacy and racism. We are not going to make it clear to these people who we deem as our quote unquote oppressors, what is the problem? Because they don't they think that because you can sit on a bus with them or you can have a job in their office or because we <coughs> excuse me. Because we have a black president, or they can see black NBA players and musicians, and we have Kanye West and all these people, they don't understand what the problem is. So when you talk to them in terms of racism, racism, white supremacy, they look at you like you're crazy, because many of them think that black people are living in Shangri-La, because they look at all these entertainers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you, if I talk to a reactionary racist like Bill O'Reilly, who doesn't even think racism is a problem in America... And I said to him, I said, listen, you realize the main reason why we have black poverty is for a whole, for generations of black people, the benefits that were given economically to your family were denied of them. He can't deny that.
1: But that's a fact. Absolutely. He can't deny that. And it puts him in a position the where he has to reckon with
2: that.
3: We're at the top of the hour, um uh, Pascal and for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground and our guest tonight is Pascal Robert. He is a blogger, a journalist, a political and 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 cultural uh activist, commentator. Uh, You've probably heard him with uh, our friend, our Common Crown voice, Yvette Carnell, on YouTube. And we're going to talk some more when we come back with him about America with 3Ks. I'm Janice Graham. Thanks for being with us, and we'll be right back.
0: This is our
3: Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight.
1: Transforming truth to power, one broadcast
3: at a time. Stay
2: tuned. What is that? Oh, that it's my time machine. Does it work?
0: Sure, just hit this button.
1: Dinosaurs, cool. Or we can go here.
2: Hey, that's Napoleon. Oui. Or we can go to the future. Wow, hey, you have this nice house. Do I have a
3: nice house? No, you didn't save any money. Always spent it on vacations and stuff.
2: If only there was a way I could go back in time and correct that bad habit. Yep. Okay, the time machine
3: is not real. But the saving thing is. Get in the habit of putting some of your money in savings each week through a 401k, savings account, or financial investment. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy tips on saving, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org.
2: What does this crazy little button do? This message brought to you by the American Institute
0: of
1: Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council.
3: I declare a show is where we deal with the difficult real raw right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media.
1: Come on, baby, say it with me. It can
3: only be the I declare a show. Talk soon my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare it. Dealing with the difficult real well right now. The I Declare Show. Baby. I mean, I get all kinds of stuff thrown at me. How do I stay focused? How do I have faith in my people? Because I want my people to, you know, come up and do whatever. But I'm telling you, sometimes it is so tough. I'm like, you know what? Read my book. I I think that um, all of us all of us are in the trenches you know and on different levels like i said you know i I always try to think about whose shoulders i I stand on and i think god harriet didn't get too tired you know Um, and and i think it takes it takes a great effort and i think a lot of it is a psychic injury i know we do need to take care of ourselves and, and i and i want us to learn how to embrace and love each other and be patient with each other and to understand how I want to say this because it's very important, what we do to each other
1: with words.
0: Talk that matters.
1: Speaking truth
3: to others and ourselves. Our
0: home
3: ground. Saturday, 2 p.m. And we thank you for being with us here tonight. On our common ground, I'm Janice Graham, and if you are new to us, our number is 347-838-9852. We are so pleased and honored to have a very brilliant, one of the most brilliant contemporary thinkers of our time, Pascal Robert. And you should know the name. You can join him on Huffington Post. He is also uh, on Twitter, and in our first hour, he has suggested to us uh, Punishing the Poor, the Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity by Locke Laquant, and When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold History of Racial Inequality in 20th Century America by Ira Kasson-Nelson. Kasson-Nelson. Yes cats nelson uh and we thank you so very much and hope that as you begin to dig out of the place where we are uh that you will begin to take seriously the kinds of information that you that you tap into you know you can listen to some of this stuff and and get entertained, and you'll have brain damage, and wonder why you miss this and miss that. Pascal, as we were going out, you were t- we were kind of like concluding and connecting the dots about uh, who is poor, why we're poor, and the history of the engines that drove us and continue to drive us because one of the things the top one of the top urgent issues that you mentioned uh as we began to talk was gentrification um and i think that people really don't understand they think that uh, gentrification is just uh an idea or a concept or a program where Um, white folks are moving into what was traditionally black black and poor communities and rehabbing houses and making them mansions or something like that. But it is a lot more than that. And one of the best examples, I think, in this country happens to be what we see in Baltimore. And that is not only that uh, as Donald Trump might say, the aliens were moving in, but people were getting displaced. We haven't paid attention, which, I, which is why I think Tahinisi's, uh Nisi Coates' uh, presentation uh, in last January's uh, Atlantic magazine about the history of public housing in Chicago was so important. That was a very good piece. Yeah, and if we run that up against what we see in Washington, D.C., which is a major gentrification center, um, if we run that against uh, what has happened in states like North Carolina and South Carolina, which people haven't paid much attention to, we see a whole different kind of framework about what gentrification is. It is not just uh, an intrusion and a fracture of our community uh, foundations, but it is also dislocation and relocation and the scattering of uh black people and African uh, African peoples in America where there is, and, and, and I see it as political because there is no way in which that the relationships can survive the physical distance. A good example here in Boston is when more than 526 units of housing that was traditionally affordable and federally financed was just simply wiped out people were moving to places like Fall River and and into Rhode Island because they couldn't find affordable housing in the city of Boston because that was another impact uh of gentrification so that's why I think it's important for us Always try to connect the dots. Now we really have been talking about um, those things which are so seriously critical for for black people. But you know, I want to ask you to give us and I give us your your take on how. The black intelligentsia, the black political leader misleadership or leadership, however you want to characterize it, has failed in regard to places like Baltimore, in regard to the issue of of poverty and black people, the issue of mass incarceration, the issue of black labor. And the issue of our lack of control over the education of our children.
2: Well, well this is you know this is a very important important question because uh, you know we have uh, this black political class over ten thousand some odd elected officials we've had in the black community since the Voting Rights Act. At one time, almost every major city in this country had a black mayor. We now have a black president. We have the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, We have all of these black political officials that we've had since the Voting Rights Act, yet the material condition of black people in this country is precipitously worsening day after day after day. And not only is it worsening after we having all these black representatives, but we have a history of black representatives, particularly, i.e., the Congressional Black Caucus uh, and our black president, Implementing policy that has disadvantaged and been damaging to the black community. Why is it that members of the Congressional Black Caucus have supported policies such as mandatory minimums, which deny judges the ability to negotiate sentences for convicted felons who may have mitigating circumstances that diminish the severity of their crime and cause them to deserve to have their sentences reduced why is it that we have over half of our congressmen in the congressional black caucus even recently supporting mandatory minimum sentencing bills why is it why do we have members of the congressional black caucus fighting net neutrality which is a crucial way to protect Free and open internet for people, particularly for poor black people. Yet they're doing the bidding of of the telecom industry. Why is it that we have large parts of our black political class supporting the privatization of education through charterizing our school system instead of trying to empower our public school system? Why is it that we have our our, our black mis- misleadership class and our, our black our black uh, Congressional Black Caucus members and our black political class representing the interest of gentrifiers banks financial institutions in the black community signing you know legislations that are exacerbating gentrification why is it that when Ferguson was up in flames, people were saying, well, look, there's no black representation in that city. There's no political. Posi- there's no black people in office. This is why this happened. But yet when Baltimore was in flames and we have a city that had probably over 30 years of black management on all political levels, people had to keep their mouth closed and say, well, why did it happen here?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Why is I- it gonna- that after all of the – All of the years and decades of support for the Democratic Party, and I I, I, I do not favor either of the two parties, to me they are two sides, two wings on the same vulture that are preying on black people. That's how I look at the two-party system. So I do not say that to try to bolster the value of Republicans. But black people do not vote over 95% for Republicans. You vote for over 95% for a political party that, in the last 25 years, one of its presidents, Bill Clinton, put more black people in prison than any president in, in prior history. Gave us Wall Street dereg- deregulation that caused a subprime mortgage crisis that evaporated black wealth in the worst that it's been since the 60s. Gave you welfare well, welfare welfare reform that put poor black and brown women and men on the street. Yet for for years, you guys were acting that like he was the first black president. Why are we so wedded to a black president now who signed a plus loan program that eviscerated historically, historically black colleges and, and, and universities, who requested a sequester to force cuts by his own Democratic Party that did not want the Social Security that has devastated black and brown poor people. A president who was advocating for a, trans, a Trans-Pacific Partnership economic trade agreement which will evaporate black labor in this country, damaging it even more than it has been because he's a black Democrat with a beautiful wife who has, you know, these he's two cute kids. This lack of political sophistication and our, our willingness to believe that we have to be wedded to these people, to these parties, has been profoundly damaging to the black community. So that's what my position is on the black political class. I have a profound amount of contempt, and I can—I mean, if I if I had the opportunity, I could we, we could spend hours alone talking about the duplicitous, the duplicitous treacherous nature of our black political elite class and how they have been damaging to the well-being of most black people perhaps since the ex- beginning of their existence.
3: You know, it's really interesting that you even when you have discussions about this with uh the so in with inside the so-called conscious uh community inside the black activist community that you constantly hear the question of why do poor white people continue to support the the Republican Party and people like Ted Cruz and Mitt Romney and 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 Donald Trump and what's their affection for Ben Carson and support of uh, the the neo neo clan sitting on the uh, on the Supreme Court, but we are not asking those questions of why we continue to support a party that has never articulated an authentic agenda to address the five issues they keep talking about the i mean it, it's almost pascal and and correct me if you think that i'm way off the off the off the farm on this but it's almost as though it has become vogue it has become part of some martin luther king s Articulation to use these words like white supremacy, white white privilege, black lives matter, and when all the evidence is that black lives don't matter, but um and 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 the mass incarceration, um prison industrial complex and pipeline school. To, to, Prison pipeline—it's all language that people are bandying about that makes good speeches
2: and and and, and writing good books. Well, I think that you, <clears throat> a lot of that rhetoric is, is sophistry, and I think that you asked me pretty—you asked if you asked me. To name the one thing that is the biggest problem for black people in america i could have I could have cut all five of those things to one thing because all five are relative to one thing poverty, poverty, mm-hmm. lack of economic power, poverty. If you are not talking about the fact that poverty poverty drives racism, why does poverty drive racism because in the minds of white people, all black people are poor and worthless. And people, who are poor you, are, people who are poor and worthless commit crime. And and for those of you who have jobs and have
3: houses and have cars, they're talking about you, too. Uh, <laughs> um, Pascal, we do have a caller, and I do want to open up the phone lines. Our number is 347-838-9852. I haven't done this thing for a couple of weeks, so I'm kind of – like getting used to being back in the saddle. Our guest tonight, Pascal Robert, he is the Thought Merchant, and we are in a conversation on America
1: with three Ks.
3: 646, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call.
1: Hey, hey, BJ, how you doing? This is Jay. Hey, Jay, how are you? Good to hear from you. I'm good, my sister. I'm enjoying your guest. You know, I, I have to disagree with the brother on a couple of things, but what he's basically saying, I agree with. Number one, he says that is poverty.
3: He's on, poverty he's on the line. You can have a conversation oh,
1: with him. Okay, brother. Poverty plays a great deal in our social, economic, political condition that we're in right now. But I would counter that with the problem is we have a hatred of being African. That's, that's where it really starts at. If we could be able to define ourselves as Africans, I think we would be able to come together on a serious level. Brother, In, can, I, can, I
2: address, can I address that question, brother, directly to you? Yes, brother. How much has identifying as Africans stopped the Africans in Africa being totally decimated by international capitalism?
1: Well well, you know, that's the thing. If they if they truly understood that they were Africans in the United States, you, know, hey, they, they you they gotta play. let These me finish, brother. We in we're in accord on on this. The point of the matter is when you are able to define yourself as who and what you are, and able to control all of the resources that are within yourself and your people, then you have the ability to fight poverty. That's where we have gotten caught up in this whole social dynamics because we as a people have first been totally brutalized since the European has came into our existence. And it has gotten to the point today, brother, to where just like you were saying earlier about these politicians. These politicians only have one purpose in regards to our people. That's for them to be able to continue to get a check and to be able to get a pension once that check is over. Everyone talks about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King's been dead for over 50 years. I don't understand why we still talk about it because the bottom line is Martin Luther King played the great role in our total um, brutalization at this present time by making us want to integrate with this beast. We were on a path of self-sufficiency. Now we're not on that path. We're on a path to where when you talk about poverty... We can't even get ourselves out of poverty, brother, because we have not been able to collectively come together to build economic wealth to challenge this white man, because we want to integrate with him. So you have these black so-called leaders now, every time you turn around, pushing, like you said, the Democratic, the Republican Party, when neither one of those parties never done anything good for us as a people, if you look at the Democratic Party and you really analyze what they've done over the last 60, 70 years to us as a people, you can't have anything good to say about them because, like you said, Bill Clinton was absolutely a monster towards people of color. What did he do? What has Obama done? He's been in office for seven years now talking about reforming the prison industrial complex. Has there really been any reform because now you'll give somebody 10 years instead of 15 or 20? So, I mean, we as a people are not collective on any level to where we will ever be able to sustain ourselves economically, emotionally, or anything because we're too busy trying to integrate with a beast. Somebody who don't like us, don't love us, who have no use for us other than what we could give to him, like you say, in regards to creating his wealth, which puts us in a poverty position. So why why must we keep on going down this same path? The only path we can now go to to save ourselves is to figure out how we can learn to identify ourselves as African and create some semblance of an economic base to challenge this beast, or to at least be able to hire your child and anybody else's child. Because the bottom line is, as intelligent and as smart as your kid may be, who are they going to for their survival on the planet but the white boy? That's that's just where we at. We have no institution in this country right now, if white folks say we are no longer going to hire you, we're no longer going to allow you to go to our schools, we now no longer need you for anything, where do we go? What do we do? Who's going to employ us? Look at what but they gave Detroit to black folks. But But, Jay, how
3: does, how does, when you say that, you think that we have to identify, by identifying as Africans, are you talking about that that somehow produces some form of, of, of unity?
0: It, it, it we produces have
3: a con- We have a black intelligentsia. We have a black um, media. We have a whole bunch of black people who are identifying as, as, as Africans.
1: No, identifying as african-americans they don't identify with african if you know all i'm saying is we as a people who have a land base every other nationality basically in this country has a land base and when you have a land base there's a certain degree of protection that affords you if you think about it do you think if america blatantly killed Italians, Chinese, Europeans, and other people in the manner that they kill African people here in this country, that those countries would not say something? Do you see them brutalizing Indian people on the level that they do? Do you see them brutalizing other people that have a land base where they identify and claim as their own? They just don't treat them like that. I think what we have in to Palestine. figure out is no no no. The Palestinian the Palestinian is really no one that is of value to to the world on the stage like a Chinese is, an Indian is, where they have where they have an economic power base to deal. You're not gonna treat a Russian like that. You're not gonna treat anybody that could match American people on a certain level economically. Here's the deal that isn't a fight back. A, a, here's the day, day, a deal, Jay. And, and that's I what Postel from... talking about.
3: But, but here's the deal. The same way, I mean, you have to really pay attention to language, but you also have to pay attention to the narrative that's created to to, to accomplish and implement any policy. In India, they call it, climate control. Get it? No question. I, I, I want to hear Pascal talk about this whole notion of how we have disguised we have disguised some of this environmental climate control stuff over we have layered it over a, a global Effort around depopulation and about, about depopulating large countries like India.
2: Yeah, depopulation efforts are definitely uh, a massive problem. A lot of people talk about vaccinations as a means of doing that. You know, some people consider those conspiracy theories, but. Depopulation is is a, is a Malthusian, if you read the, the philosophies of Thomas Malthus, who was a British philosopher who basically talked about how the need to control the resources on the planet uh, because of population, this is something that's been part of the Anglo-American policy agenda for over a century. And uh there was a very interesting documentary that I was watching it's actually in French you know, and for those who can find it it's online I have to think about the actual link. It was talking about how there was a conference of French elites and bankers in Paris, and they were basically talking about how the need there will be a need to cut the population of Africa down by fifty percent to maintain the global productivity of the world. For the rest of the 21st century, but I would like to address the brother, the brother Jay, because I don't want to think he's he's dodging. I'm dodging his question. And he no, makes not very at all, great, brother. Yeah, yeah, he makes a very interesting question, and I want to address this because this is this is a point of contention that I have with some of my some of our nationalist brothers, and 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 I admire the passion that our black nationalist brothers have, and I admire the, you know their dedication to the black community. But there's certain things that we need to To really consider in terms of the condition of black people in America first of all when people say things like we were better before integration I want you to understand don't phrase it that way phrase it this way we were better under Jim Crow because that's what you're saying what you're saying is that Jim Crow was better for black people integration. When you think about it that way, it doesn't sound as good. But that's actually what you're saying. You're actually saying that Jim Crow don't say integration was bad for us. No, say Jim Crow was good for us. Because when you say Jim Crow was good for us, it changes the whole way you think about that argument. Because that's actually what you're saying. You're saying Jim Crow, which was the most damaging regime and legal and social and political reality for black people in this country, that Jim Crow was good for us and integration was bad, when you frame it that way, I think you will think twice before you say integration was the worst thing that happened to us. Because if you realize that, you will realize that in 1966, under Jim Crow, 55% of black people
1: lived below the poverty line. Now you can imagine how all a, the parts. I understand what you're saying, but see, you have to you have to look at it a little bit broader. I agree with what you're saying, but you must remember, Jim Crow wasn't on the level in the in the in the east and the west like it was in the south. So, so that, the majority and, and of black people that's lived in people, the
2: south.
1: Huh? But the majority of black people lived in the south. The majority of black people still live in the south. That's a fact. Yeah, yeah, but people don't, but people don't look at it on on those terms. You, you know what I well, mean? That's the problem. That's it. the problem. Okay. But
2: the thing is, my brother, that's what I'm saying, Jay. When black people say we were better before integration, which really means we were better under Jim Crow, they don't understand that. First of all, Jim Crow was not only in the South. Jim Crow was in Chicago because, as Sister Graham was saying, if you look at Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece on Chicago housing policy under Jim Crow. It was segregated. You couldn't get a GI bill loan to buy a house in a nice neighborhood. You, can, you might not be able to get a place for the bill in segregated neighborhoods. So Jim Crow. So anytime I hear my brothers from the conscious community say integration is what destroy them, destroyed us, I want them. I, what I really want them to say is, what you're is that
1: Jim Crow was a good thing for black people because that's what you're saying. Well, well, I I I, I can agree with. Partially what you're saying, but then again, if, if we go be honest, can we say we we're still under a former Jim Crow? I'm glad you said that, brother, because you know what? I agree <laughs> with you.
2: The problem was not that we were integrated. The problem was that we were not fully integrated. I'm glad well, you, you can't said never,
1: that. You, you can't never be fully integrated with your oppressor because. Your well, I'm glad you said that, because my question is, who is the oppressor? Is the oppressor a person or is the oppressor a system? The the, the oppressor is a system which is implemented by people. Right. It's, are it's, all those people white or are there, are there people of different colors who are implementing that system? I would say... They're people of different colors, but we know who the head of the head is. If that's it the case, is, let me question, Wait, Stop, stop, it. stop, stop, stop. If that's the case, why are we talking about white people? Because the bottom line is it's white people who control the planet. It's Actually, that's not who, the case. That's who, not the case. There no, are people no. of color throughout the world
2: who are benefiting from this economic system or helping run the second system that is damaging people who are poor who look like them. Is there a okay. disproportionate? Wait, a minute, hold on. Is there a disproportionate benefit to white people? Of course, because they started the system. There's no denying that. What I'm saying is that the system is at a position right now where it cannot function without the black and
1: brown collaborator, or what they call I, the comprador class. Let's talk about the
3: wh- Okay, so it, my last
1: hey, question to you is this, let's, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I disagree with some of it. So we had a great balance. My question is, where do we go from today separating ourselves from the Martin Luther Kings and the rest of these so-called leaders? How do we get ourselves to a position
2: today that we can move forward? there's There's something you said I do agree with. I, I'm not a fan of black capitalism. I'm an anti-capitalist. But I, that does not mean I don't believe black people shouldn't control their economic resources. I wouldn't be talking about poverty and economics if I didn't believe that. I do right. believe we have to, we have this, this is a fundamental question we have to ask right now. Some of us have to ask, because there's some of us who are chilling, who are working the mechanisms of the machine. The people who feel that the system is not working to their advantage have to ask this question. This is what we have to ask. Is it possible in this current American reality that we can demand a policy agenda rooted in political economy similar to a New Deal 2.0 to lift black people out of poverty economically? Because that's what it will take. That's okay. We have to ask that question. Is Are we willing to make that demand? Are we going to make that demand, and can that demand be made in a way that we get that result? That's one. If we don't believe we can either make that demand or get that result, what is a viable economic model that we can, that those of us who feel the system is not working for them, can create for themselves so that we can so. Weather the storm on the onslaught that is coming, because if we don't get the first demand, if they don't reorganize the economic order in this country, they're going to be destroying a lot more than just poor black people. They're going to be destroying people of all colors who are not at the one percent.
1: You can believe that. Yeah.
2: Fifty-one yeah. percent of Americans make less than thirty thousand dollars a year right now. That's a fact. Well, you
3: just made that plain, Jay. Thank you. So- Thank you so much for the call. Thank you and, and... Pascal,
1: I, I really I really enjoy what you're saying and, and the question that you just asked is, is a question that we must all think about and I would say this, brother, you need to put together a think tank of brothers and sisters who could answer that question in the near future. Hotel. All right, Hotel. Brother,
3: you know, see Pascal, here here is the deal that we have not done the proper kind of analysis of who represents our interests, who represents our immediate and our long-term empowerment. We haven't done that economically, and uh, I'm hoping that I will have Derek Hamilton and Sandy... uh, uh, dr William Dougherty with us next week uh to talk about these issues but we we ha- we do not recognize we we are still meshed in the symbolism, and that really goes to Jay's comment about we're still holding on to the words of martin luther king we're 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 quoting um Malcolm we're quoting garvey we're quoting um um, people of our history who have been important in terms of voicing our interests, but at the same time, we're not looking at the people who are in front of us who have some form of control.
2: That's that's absolutely correct. And uh, I think part of the problem is that we fall into something. I wrote a piece for Black Agenda Report called The Fallacy of Racial Kinship Politics. Now, what does that mean? What is the fallacy of racial kinship politics? The fallacy of racial kinship politics is the fact that you believe that because X candidate who is black is president of the United States. And the fact that he got financed by Wall Street more than any other candidate in the history of American politics, and got financed by the oil industry more than any other Democratic modern history, that you think that simply because he's back, black and has a racial kinship to you, that he is going to implement policy to your benefit—that is ridiculous, because because it, it assumes that blackness has this magical appeal, ability to to. To alleviate greed from the human psyche. And part of the problem we have had is we have fallen into this fallacy of racial kinship politics. We feel that because we have a congressional black caucus, we got all these black faces in high places that the brothers and sisters aren't going to sell us out. Negroes sell themselves out real cheap. Real cheap. All the time. You know, so it, con- it, the concept. It, it was, go ahead, go ahead, James. It was
3: interesting that the Negro leadership maintained their silence in the face of the cover-up of the Laquan McDonald murder execution, actually, um, and held. And, and held themselves as a way of protecting Rahm Emanuel
2: as yeah, that's a way the same, that's of the same offering a gift
3: to Barack Obama.
2: Yeah, that's the same black misleadership clack of class of Chicago that backed Rahm Emanuel in his re-election bid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is this is this is this is. This is Comical, tragic, and quite normal in, the, in, in black politics. It is comical, it is tragic, and it is quite normal.
1: Politicians by design
2: in America are about protecting the interests of capital. You have to force them with demands that are the most extreme in your benefit before they give you ones that are halfway what you really want. To assume that just because a politician has the same skin color as you, that he is not representing the interests of capitalism, capital and capitalism is a grave error. And okay. it's one of the most damaging errors that black people have made comprehensively politically since the Voting Rights Act.
3: You know, you wrote two pieces in 2013 that probably – in my estimation are the most profound. Um, I mean, I follow your 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 blog and I follow your writing and I follow you on Facebook to see what you're gonna say about this, that and the other, like a little um uh, <coughs> a little um uh, squirrel scurrying around trying to, to gather up uh the wisdom. And Bruce Dixon who wrote a piece about the end of the age of Obama. And I want you to talk about your piece that you wrote about, the historical failure of black leadership. And also, mirror it to the piece that you wrote about your Shiro and my Shiro, Ella Baker.
2: Oh, that's it. Ella Baker is a, the most underappreciated Black leader, probably in the history of this country. Uh, the, the historical failure of Black leadership was a, wrote, a piece I wrote. Actually, it was during Black History Month in 2013. It was. It's in Black Agenda Report. It's in Huffington Post. If you Google the historical failure of Black leadership and my name, you can find it at both sides. And what that piece that piece was about was doing a, a retrospective analysis as to what has been the nature of black leadership what is black leadership and why has black leadership really been unable to deliver for the black community in a way that truly comprehensively improves the condition of black people and the ultimate thesis of the piece is that one of the reasons, problems that we had with black leadership before the Voting Rights Act, and even some to some degree after, but definitely before the Voting Rights Act, is that black leadership was something that was chosen the, by the top down as opposed to the bottom up. In other words, the power structure of American society chose Booker T. Washington. The white media establishment decided they were going to focus – on Martin Luther King or focus on Malcolm X. And that it always tends to follow, it's focused on Du Bois. There are other leaders that we have had in the black community who provided powerful solutions, but the power elite of American society did not focus on them and did not concentrate on them because they did not feel that they could be used to a specific agenda. A perfect example is the great Hubert Harrison, the voice of Harlem radicalism. I have the book here by Jeffrey Perry, mm-hmm. who wrote about Hubert Harrison, who was one of the greatest black leaders we had in the early 20th century, who developed an economic and political agenda to empower the black community that. That was definitely something more, and more dynamic. This is a man, by the way, who was the teacher of Marcus Garvey Marcus for our Black Harvey. nationalist exactly. brothers who are who are the fans of Garvey. This is the man. This is a man as conf- as self confident as Marcus Garvey was. This is a man who Garvey went to for instruction. Cuban
3: mm-hmm. Harrison. And 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 for those of you who might not remember and you can go into our archives here at Blog Talk Radio, the OCG page, and you can find our interview with Jeffrey um with Jeffrey Perry uh about his book and and about his work and his advocacy which is so tremendous. Um I've had the pleasure of attending one of his lectures here in Boston uh on Harrison and he is just absolutely riveting in terms of what he uh presents and his understanding of how important Harrison was. Thank you thank you for mentioning that, uh Pascal.
2: Yes, yes. So the point I'm trying to say is that black leadership in America is generally framed in a way in which the power elite choose and pick leaders who may have some basis of legitimacy in the black community, but they are elevated, and usually they are elevated in a way in which they are played against another leader to create this kind of dialectical, what's called a Hegelian dialectic. That's nothing but a sophisticated intellectual way of saying you take two polar opposites, you create a conflict between the two, and you take a synergy of the two ideas of both, and you use them in the way that you want. So you end up having Booker T versus Du Bois. You end up having Du Bois versus Garvey. You end up having Malcolm versus Martin. This Hegelian dialectic, this dichotomy, this game that the power elite have played in manipulating black leadership has been a way for them to control the narrative of what are the options that we're able to choose in the black community when we are neglecting options that could be more practical to us, like a Hubert Harrison or like someone like an Ella Baker or someone like the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement that has a wonderful cooperative economic plan. We, those are things that we don't hear about. No one knows that we've had movements like that or people like that. We don't hear about their agendas because certain people who have a certain char- role of using charismatic masculinity, this kind of, you know, uh, oratorical showmanship that go back to the black church that we fall prey to because we like a good speech. Yep. And we fail to realize that what is the substance behind the speech, what is the agenda behind the speech. And to tie that in to the piece I wrote, Ella Baker and the Limits of Charismatic Masculinity, that piece was written uh, in regards to a book that I had read by a Professor Barbara Ransby called Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement. It's a great book. Anyone yeah, who is not yeah. familiar with Ella Baker needs to read that book, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement by Barbara Ransby. And it, it basically explains how Ella Baker was probably the most integral part of every aspect of the civil rights movement right. in the 20th mm-hmm. century. She mm-hmm. helped organize the SCLC. She worked for the NWCP. She she was teaching and basically instructing Uh, uh, the the ministers in the SELC about strategy and planning. She created SNCC. Where Stokey Carmichael came out of. She was very radical and she fundamentally believed that it was not the role of black elites to dictate the issues and concerns of black people. What you do is that you empower people with information and you give them the power to make decisions of themselves. We don't need black preachers, teachers, who are you know, these educated Negroes with silk suits telling us what to do, you can empower people to make decisions for themselves. And I think that one of the things we need to do to address what Brother Jay was asking is that we need to go back to the Ella Baker model of empowering the poor and working class in our community and stop with this notion that we need some charismatic brother who can speak at the microphone rhapsodically to move the crowd without an agenda that can actually change the condition of black life in this country.
3: I think that there is a reason why. All of this all of these failures, you know, as lawyers we 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 write these briefs and say that so and so has failed to blah 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 and and um and and and, and, and do the citation on the regulatory blah 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 but we need to do that kind of analysis for every member, for every person that has that is in elected office who say that they represent our interests. We need to break the cycle of allowing people to do, to, to to do their personal. Their personal hustle on the backs and shoulders of of black people. We we we've got to stop doing that. We don't have a lot of time, uh, Pascal, but I did want to get your take on where you think we are and what this new form of fear mongering uh, about terrorism on the homeland. Uh, and what what that means for us as Black people?
2: Well, uh, in terms of this quote unquote terrorism, you know, the, the, whenever I hear people talking about the terrorist ter- terrorists, the first question I ask is, who are the real terrorists? Who are the real terrorists? Is ISIS the real terrorist? Or is the government that killed almost two million Iraqis and destroyed their country and destroyed their infrastructure the terrorists? You know, say is Al Qaeda the terrorists? Or is the country that had Muammar Gaddafi assassinated destabilized Libya, turned that country upside down to now it's a complete war zone? The terrorists. You know, who is the terrorist? Is is is? Is it Al-Nusra front, the terrorists, or is it the government that makes sure that the weapons that they get them come from American weapons manufacturers and that American allies like Saudi Arabia and Turkey are buying oil from people like ISIS and funding them, the terrorists? So when we we talk about these things, about terrorism and global terrorism, the first questions I ask is, number one, who pays these people, who arms these people, or who gives these people orders? All right, And all of this, all of these groups, whether it's al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, all of these ISIS, ISIL, or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, these are all proxy organizations created by American allies in the petro-monarchies. What are the petro-monarchies? Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, these petro-monarchies, are taking a perverted form of Islam to infuse a psychotic, nihilistic vigilantism in Muslims who are poor and desperate all over the world to act as, act as proxy soldiers for American empire, to destabilize key Muslim countries, to allow the American government to justify military intervention, to assure American control of resources in competition with the only hegemonic counterparty we have, which is China and the Soviet Union. That's all this is. This is a chess game. Us against the Chinese and the Russians, and using the resources of the Muslim world as the as the as the as the prize. Period. Mm. It's been going on okay. since nine eleven. Nine eleven was nothing but the shot heard around the world to get the scramble going. So that's my whole my my position on this quote unquote terrorism, and who are the terrorists, and who's funding the terrorists, and why we have terrorism. And this is not a conspiracy theory. You can go to mainstream sources, and you can find out, Google, who, who created ISIS, who created al-Qaeda. There's a YouTube of Hillary Clinton testifying, test, testifying before the U.S. Senate Committee, basically admitting, yes, we created al-Qaeda. You can find a YouTube of, 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 of Joe Biden on YouTube right now, admitting that the United States allowed its allies, like Saudi Arabia, to create ISIS knowingly. There's a video of the former director of uh, of uh, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, who left last year, who basically said in a memo that, yes, we knew that ISIS was being created and we basically allowed it to happen because we thought we could be using it to destabilize Assad in Syria. So we need to cut this con game, like the evil terrorist. We know who these people are in this. The United States government and intelligence agencies know who these people are. They know who finances them. Countries like Turkey, who are our allies, are buying oil from them. This is a kabuki dance. <laughs> a kabuki dance with grave global consequences. You know, people say, are we going to World War III? Of course, because every century, at the beginning of a new century, these global imperialists need a new war to turn over the chessboard and rearrange the pieces. Absolutely. 1915, you had World War One. 1815, you had the Napoleonic War. 715, you had a, there was a major war in Europe. 16 to 16, early 1600s, you had the uh, the Thirty Years' War. This is part of Euro Anglo American Empire. This is the game they play to reorganize the chessboard. At the beginning of every century, they play this con. It is the game,
3: Pascal Rivera. You have given us so much information and analysis and nudged us into places where most people, most black people dare not go. And one of the things before we have to say goodbye to you, and I'm sure it will not be the last time that you join us on our common ground, is how can people like me, people who are independent media um, concerns do a better job in bringing voices like yours uh, to our people?
2: That's a, that's a powerful question. Uh, well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to have dominion and control of independent black media that's not bought off and paid for by corporate sources. And I think the Internet has provided a great a great, uh, a great opportunity for that. And we have to promote the truth-tellers in our community. And one of the reasons why I appreciate you, Janice, is because you are one of the truth-tellers in our community, and that we have to prom- yeah. promote people like the publication I write for, Black Agenda Report. We have to promote people like Yvette Carnell, like John Baraka. We have to promote people who are the truth-tellers in our community who may not be getting... The media accolades and acclaim of yeah. being put on MSNBC and towing the party line but are willing to say what needs to be said. And the reason Absolutely. why they're not getting that media acclaim is that's because the truth threatens the status quo, and the status yep. quo is not your friend.
3: Well, thank you for being with us tonight, and you will – be getting a call from us to come back and talk about some specific things around Haiti thank you all for joining us tonight at our common ground and join us next Saturday night at 10pm we're glad to see Alfo with us and he is recuperating well Pascal thank you so much and good night see you next Saturday night all of you
2: thank you so much
3: Thank you for joining us on our common ground tonight. We're especially thankful for your support.